Good morning. This is Greg Sestero, author of The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, the greatest bad movie ever made, and you're listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future. Welcome to Too Much Scrolling for August 8th, 2023. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Radical Chip Hesifo, dudes. <laughs> Just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. What a week. What a week I have had, Chip. I, hey, Chip. <laughs> There's some news in the movie section when we get to the film at 11. How have you, how have you been? I'm well. Good. <laughs> Cowabunga. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. I don't know if you uh, noticed in our intro, but Chip, you went to go see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Tell us all about this movie. Yeah, dude. All right. So this movie had like a really an early, early opening. Like normally there's like a Thursday opening, but I'm mm-hmm. going to say there was a Tuesday and a Wednesday. and a- Indeed. I mean, they just kept uh, opening this up r- earlier and earlier and earlier. But anyway, this is the latest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, film. This is uh, a property that I guess came into existence my ninth grade year, Steve. Okay. So you were a little bit younger than I was. I still am. And it was not something that, that interested me at the time, but it grew into what it is right now, which is this incredibly big property that is, um, well, was finally treated really, really well by a movie. Excellent. Uh, this is a Seth Rogen-led uh, production. There are all of his buddies in this. Ice Cube and Paul Rudd and anybody else you want to name, they're all part of this. This has also got a unique um, style of animation, along with Spider-Man Across the Multiverse that came out earlier this year. I think we're ushering in a different style of animation. We're moving away from the Pixar look, the Illumination Studios look, from the Disney look, and we're moving into certainly a overwhelmingly visual way of telling stories kind of you know it's just not as clean as the previous generations versions of animation where they tried to make things look yeah just what real perfect and and this is imperfect right this is much more a, a nod to the independent comic book that was the original story of the teenage mutant ninja turtles it is the the original one was a black and white comic was the one of the beginning if not the beginning of the black and white era it was based um as a spoof on frank miller's work on daredevil ultimately the dark knight um but really you know lots of uh, ninja swords and uh you know just it certainly was of its time Hmm. and the creators of it were incredibly influenced they they have funded so many wonderful things and they certainly have made an impact the rights to this i I don't know if they're sold or they're still uh, owned by them but all i can say is 
It's a property that's well loved. I had a couple 13 year olds who were sitting beside me. They were totally eating this up. Uh, I had a dad who was probably in his forties with his young son going, I first watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I was your age. His <laughs> son was probably, oh, I'm gonna say six or seven. They were eating popcorn. The 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 seven year old talked the entire was asking dad questions, and dad was being super dad. I mean, he's like, yeah, yeah, you got to put on your glasses uh, to watch this. I know it looks weird. That's why you put your glasses on. You know all those types of things because it's a three D film. Okay, I I do think that this uh, really hit all the um, the points that you'd want to hit. Set up for the next movie. Okay. So this is going to be a franchise. I really do think that they got the spirit of this um, property really really well you know you got to dial seth rogan back a little bit mm. but it's it, but he certainly understands how teens kind of communicate with each other and because it's an animation film they got to rewrite it a few times so it, it's got a little more polished than some of the the dialogue that rogan films have had in the past now listen they also have a, a, a number of other writers on this this is a superstar cast of um of voice actors you know most of these actors um i'm gonna say 68 out of 100 i don't think it's as good as spider-man uh, across the multiverse okay. but i think it's right there behind it and I, I yeah it could it could it win some visual awards wow if it didn't have to go against spider-man it may it may, it may. so i wonderful job this is um, really a good film, and I would say a good family film. There's a couple of, of curse words in it, swear words, but really it's, um, you know, if a 10-year-old, certainly it's it's designed all around them. Very good. What's interesting to me is that they used all teenagers for the voices of the turtles. You were talking about the guests, the stars of this movie, but really the turtles are teenage boys, and they made April O'Neil a teenager in this as well to really appeal to that age group. Well, I, it worked out real well. I, I thought it was a snappy film, you know, with dialogue and, and sort of how they interacted with each other. This is what is kind of missing with a lot of the movies today. You know, I don't think this is, you know, certainly not treading any new waters. It's, it's tropey, tropey. But if you are a young person and you, you have interest in these characters, uh, or you're a person who grew up with these characters, mm -hmm. I think it's something that would appeal to you. Uh, it is a, I don't know if it's going to be the park, you know, type of, you know, where they have like uh, movies in the park type things during the summer. No. Nope. So there's a, there's a couple of swear words in it. Nothing too over the top. No, no, you know, sexual situations or anything. But uh, I will say that, you know, it's a, it's a very capable film that certainly delivered where a lot of films don't deliver okay i will take that as a, a a recommendation i will see this movie at some point i am a fan of this property from when i was your age yeah it's, it just was not part of my life i know i know transformers and teenage mutant ninja turtles fell somewhere between your life and my life i get it let me back up the use of, do you remember the Masters of the Universe, What's Going On parody? No. 
Tell me about that. No. It is part of this. They start off with four non-blondes, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then it you know, kind of they mix in and it just turns into this one as the scene keeps going on. Got it. It and... goes from the real song to the parody version. Got it. It's very silly. I look forward to seeing this movie for sure. You also got to see the Stan Lee documentary that's on Disney Plus right now. So the Stanley documentary, Stanley was the founder, I'm sorry, was the founder, was one of the original writers of Marvel Comics as it became known as Marvel Comics. In many ways, it was the, he he was the, the salesman, he was the writer, and uh, he helped develop the Marvel way of writing comic books, which was to discuss the plot or not <laughs> with the, with the artist. And then send the artists away, and they would come back with a completed story, and he would add the poppy, fun dialogue that made these early comics in the 1960s very memorable. And Marvel's, that was a Marvel revolution. Another Marvel revolution was that these were not perfect characters. They had all the challenges of an everyday person. They've got bills to pay. They've got obligations. They can't get the, the girl, all the things that you can imagine. And then all of a sudden you've got something that is kind of leveling up from the Supermans and Batmans of the world. Yeah. They, they're sort of like father figures in many, many ways. And uh, you would go on adventures with them, however you want to describe that. So this is certainly um, something to explore because it was very, I mean, any kid today is very aware of the MCU and the film universe. And these characters were developed a long, long time ago. And Jack Kirby, who was the artist for many of these stories, said that they're much bigger than these comic books are. Mm-hmm. And my goodness, how what, what a prophecy, because he absolutely was correct. This is a billion dollar property at yeah. this point. All these guys should be very proud of what they were able to do with the storytelling. And and the storytelling has gone on for so long now. And yeah, generation after generation, those kids know these characters. The the turnaround time for a book, you know, was 30 days. So, you know, it wasn't like you were spending a lot of time with writing or with the arts. It's just amazing what they've been able to do and how influential they've been. I'm going to say 50 out of 100. This is a puff piece. Mm-hmm. It. What what you get from this is Stan was a person who came from a very, very poor background. And he grew up in New York City, but his parents were immigrants. They didn't have a lot. They saved up. They got him a bicycle, which has allowed him to explore the city where walking didn't allow him to explore the city. So there's a big difference between growing up in a large metropolitan area like mm-hmm. New York City and any places like we live, the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to walk the city gives you a, a perspective. Yeah, and it, so he was just a guy that was just happy to get a job in many ways. And he got roped into basically being a gopher, uh, ultimately at, at a, a comic book publisher, uh, place and he just um, he drove everybody crazy as they were kind of putting together Captain America and things of that nature. But you know, eventually he gets asked to write a script, and he just rose to the occasion. Eventually, he's asked to be publisher, 
which he just kind of takes over and kind of passes that on. Eventually, he's just giving a, a, a title that, you know, he is the figurehead, but really has no, you know, he's not the business manager. He's not anything really other than the uh, the public relations guy mm-hmm. for, for Marvel. So there is ultimately an evolution of, you know, 30 years uh, of what he, he did, because any kid from our generation who grew up, you know, who watched a cartoon and goes, I'm Stan Lee. You know, and any kid from our kids' generation, you know, they got to see the Marvel movies, and he's the guy that shows up as a postman, or he's a librarian, or some odd place in a Marvel film. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to say is he loved his wife. He ran into his wife by chance, and they just hit it off, and they were both extroverts. And, you know, they said, why did the relationship work so well? Well, he could be the writer and he could spend his time writing uh, and she could entertain herself is really what it came down to. And they were willing to work it within the the money they were able to pull in at the time. They had one daughter. They, they um, lost the second one. Um, that became a v- big focal point of their um, of life. And, um, yeah, there's no doubt that, that Stanley had an ego, um, but he also was a voice where comics had no voice at, at some time. You know, one of the, the things they touch on is his tour of college campuses and what it, what that meant to have him come in and, and talk a little bit about this industry that really wasn't highly regarded. And he was able to help it rise or help it mature some. And so I, I think that that was what we want to get from this. What was missing in this certainly is all the artists that worked with him and, and the credit that they deserve. He, there is a part of the movie that you may or may not cringe, depending upon what you know about um, the founding of Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, it is true that Stan Lee said, I, I want a character called Spider-Man. And he sent Jack Kirby to create this character. And what Jack Kirby came back with really wasn't Spider-Man. It was Steve Ditko who gave Spider-Man the costume, that gave Spider-Man the look, it gave Spider-Man the stories. And Stan is very protective of that. He thinks that he was the creator of Spider-Man because he thought of it. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why uh, his artist, Steve Ditko, who did so much for that character, left was because he felt like he was writing these stories. Ultimately, he was writing them as he was putting them together. He was creating the characters. He felt he was uh, at least a co-creator of this character. And Stan just didn't necessarily wanted to share it. And he would say things like, well, in his mind, uh, he is a co-creator. And this is really important on another level, because when you start looking at the founding of these characters, there's billions of dollars. And for Spider-Man, it truly is billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It is a billion-dollar property. That's the reason why Sony still holds the the rights to that character when they sold it off during Marvel's bankruptcy. This is really kind of a, an interesting story. Let's like say it's kind of a puff piece, 50 out of 100. Um, something to, to note is that on September 12th of this year, Tom Scioli is going to have a book coming out that's called I Am Stan. This basically going to cover um, this material and more. 
It has nothing to do with this um, Stanley documentary. It was planned and written way before this. Mm -hmm. And this is a follow-up to Tom Scioli's um, book, I Am Jack, from 2020, where he basically took Jack Kirby, who created, my goodness, any number of these characters, the Avengers and all those members. They were part of Jack's um, wheelhouse, too. And Stanley got to put his dialogue to him and helped, you know, maybe form a little bit of it. But certainly it was a partnership that was mm -hmm. kind of magic. And uh, Fantastic Four being their ultimate magic. Um, One of my favorites, so, for sure. Fantastic Four? I love the Fantastic Four. The The idea of family being added to this concept of superhero lifestyle. That was very good storytelling. I look forward to what they're going to be able to do with that in film form in the future. Maybe Vin Diesel can be part of it. It's all about family. I had an interesting week, Chip. I I went to see a movie. Actually, I saw two movies this week. But you just didn't see a movie, Steve. <laughs> you went to the Alamo Draft House to see a movie. I did. I went downtown Chicago, Wrigleyville, during a Chicago Cubs game, by the way. By the way, going to a movie during a Cubs game is kind of a difficult stretch. There's no parking in that area at I, all i don't i don't think they thought that out real well no. <laughs> they, they're competing with you know what do you do from from april to october i'm sorry april to september steve <laughs> it is the cubs right early september, <laughs> early september right? <laughs> yeah the the crowd the throng of people all trying to find a place to put their car to go to see a cubs game and i get out of my car with cousin joseph from texas by the way we get out of the car and they go oh you're gonna have so much fun at the cubs game and we went yeah we're gonna go see the room and the parking people go wait the room what's that and we go oh it's the worst movie ever made but we love it and the parking people go then okay you have have fun question mark i went to go to the alamo draft house and saw greg sestero the star of the room presenting this cringy terrible bad movie the 20th anniversary of this movie is being celebrated this year and i i hate and love this movie so much oh hey steve how's your sex life we had so much fun. Greg had a microphone and he was talking during the movie, except for during the sex scenes. There's these terrible, poorly filmed sex scenes in this movie. And he leaves the room during these scenes. And, and the he whole, does? yes, he does. Yes, he does. He has no interest in seeing this. Can you imagine what the life of Greg Sestero is like right now? Going from town to town, watching this crummy movie nightly every night in a different city living in a hotel room to watch this crummy movie and try to make some joy with it well making love to a belly button has got to be pretty tough steve <laughs> it's one of the things that certainly comes up in the conversation is what what is happening in this action how is this functioning joseph and i had so much fun going to the alamo draft house seeing this facility this temple to film the love of filmmaking and that's what the room is in a way too is tommy wiseau loves 
the idea of filmmaking and he wanted to be a big hollywood star he decided the only way he could do that is to fund his own film and make this very very bad six million dollar movie 20 years ago and here we are still paying a lot of money to watch this movie <laughs> that's very funny steve it's my favorite story. That is my favorite story. And I did get to talk to Greg about that. The idea of the hospital on Guerrero Street. That is a story from the book, The Disaster Artist, that Greg wrote. He was messing with Tommy that day on the set. He knew that Tommy hated when people put any kind of emphasis on his life. So he, Greg, says in on camera, Oh, that girl got beat up and she was brought to that hospital on Guerrero Street. Guerrero Street happened to be the street that Tommy lived on at the time. And Tommy did not want that information out there. He was a very, very, very private person. And so that laugh that Tommy gives, ha, 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 great story, Greg. That's just Tommy reacting to being embarrassed and it's, it made it into the movie and became a part of the cult of this film. You got to see the presentation of The Room, the 20th anniversary, with actor Greg Sestero. Mm -hmm. um, that seems like a lot of fun. But you also got to watch The Disaster Artist, the 2017 film that stars James Franco. The good movie made about the bad movie. Yes, sir. I decided that since we were going to go see this bad movie, we should watch the behind the scenes. The Disaster Artist is Greg's story. That is the book that he wrote about the making of this movie. And I wanted Cousin Joseph to have the background for this. And my wife actually sat down and watched this movie with us. She actually gave the universe two hours of her time to watch the good movie, The Disaster Artist, about the bad movie, The Room. So what did they think of this film, Steve? That's uh, your review of what they thought, Steve. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> what did what did they think of this, I don't know, this crazy movie and a movie about that movie? The good movie about the crazy movie, the Golden Globe winning film, The Disaster Artist, is a great look at the friendship between Greg and Tommy and how this alien of a man, Tommy Wiseau, is so interesting, so intriguing as a human being and how Greg... So, so you say <laughs> how greg got mixed up with this crazy character is the story of the disaster artist during the viewing of the room greg said yeah the movie version of my book the disaster artist really went in a nice direction i was not nearly as nice in my book i was kind of angry with my situation with tommy he he made me angry sometimes and the movie version with the franco brothers playing greg and tommy they portrayed this as a buddy comedy these are friends working together to put together a film to make a movie so what did your wife and your cousin think of watching this film about this awful movie my wife kept turning to me and just staring like what the heck is happening in this world what is happening in this movie it is so bizarre tommy wiseau is such a character she really had never experienced 
anything like this before. So I, I wouldn't say that that's a, a glowing review from her perspective, but cousin Joseph enjoyed all the backstory having the backstory for the room is kind of important interesting side story joseph said that he watched the room on adult swim they put this movie on cable television once and took out all of the uh, sex scenes and presented this movie on adult swim he watched it without knowing anything about it he just was watching television one night and this movie came up i can't imagine i can't imagine seeing the room with no backstory the backstory the knowledge of who tommy wiseau is is so critical to understanding what this film is and why it is so loved this is a beloved crummy film this is the citizen kane of bad films because there's something true to this movie tommy cares he's not really good at expressing himself he's really bad at writing dialogue but he cares about filmmaking in fact i first watched this film because you and kyle hickman had talked about munson's at the movies if you want to follow his his podcast talked about it and uh, I, you had to order a copy of it. You couldn't just pick up and just watch it. Mm -hmm. You had to actually purchase it because Tommy Wiseau wisely rec recognizes that, um, yeah, you, you're not going to want to watch this too many times. It, it is awful. And, <laughs> uh, and I say awful in the sense there is a story. And the beauty of this movie is that you can will a film into existence. And with, that's exactly what he did. Absolutely. With $6 million. He invested $6 million to make this happen because he believed in the idea of making film so much. Tommy has really embraced the cult status of this movie. If you go to his YouTube channel, he has all sorts of little videos where he is highlighting his own existence and showing us that he's okay with being this character that he's become as much as stan lee is a character in our story tommy Wiseau is a very very different character it was a lot of fun who may be from any number of countries you never know steve <laughs> he's from new orleans new orleans i'm sorry where new orleans you know the big easy oh new orleans yeah so, that's what i said so let's leave this discussion real quickly <laughs> and move to sort of what what how this film has inspired a number of things so let's go back a few years steve go to the blue box cafe um and to a live performance steve a live performance of a shakespearean parody that's right the tragedy of john and lisa steve it is a shakespearean parody of the room rob southgate southgate media was part of it Tell us a little bit about your memories. This was an amazing this. night of talent. The The group of performers from the Edge Theater came to the Blue Box Cafe in September of 2018 and gave us a, a hysterical iambic pentameter Shakespearean experience of the story of the room. Lisa, thou art tearing me apart. 
It oh, hilarious. Brilliant. I, I love the story of the making of this film. I, I really think that that's what we creators want to do is create. Tommy found a way, regardless of, of all of the, the ridiculousness, Tommy Wiseau made a movie that we're still talking about 20 years later. There's not many films that we still honor in this way well, not the crummy ones well it, it has a life of its own steve you also got to explore the big uh summer blockbusters this week you finally got to the theater to see barbie i did i i enjoyed this film very much this is a film that is uh much deeper than the room has so much to say so much heart to it i hope that everybody out there gets a chance to experience this movie it's not what you think it is i'm not going to give spoilers but i i want everybody to understand that the the real deep questions of life are really closely examined in the Barbie movie. Barbie's existential crisis leads her to understanding about community, leads her to understanding about women in our world and how we can all work together and we all have a role to play in our lives. I, I really think everybody should see the Barbie movie. And this section of the movie's is sponsored by Birkenstock. Birkenstocks are the the choice to be made. What do you want to know reality, Steve? Where Birkenstocks? First, you go to Kate McKinnon. I, I, I got to say, Kate McKinnon is is the Barbie that I would like to have in, in the collection of Barbies and toys. She is, she is a great piece of this story. I don't want to spoil any of it, but she is the, the Barbie that... <laughs> That is I, well played with steve well played with and her representation is on display here i i really enjoyed this film <laughs> there's all sorts of barbies there there's even those that have been well played with all sorts of representations for sure book it 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 Book it. Brings us to our book at our book of the week. You, sir, you have been gaining new knowledge. The book this week is Breath, the New Science of a Lost Art. This was published in 2020 by James Nestor. Steve, you may be wondering why all these lava lamps are beside me. Oh. And why we have this zen-like presence in the moment. Oh, a philosophy book. <laughs> yeah, we're nice and relaxed here at the hookah bar. As we record. All right. So our book is called Breath. It is about the art of breathing and how humans have lost their ability to breathe and the science around that and what it causes. So when you go and you find an ancient skull, Steve, you're finding these uh, or you find some tribe out in the middle of nowhere and they have these perfect teeth and they have... Um, well, they're breathing properly. They don't have asthma. They don't have all these other issues going on. What's causing that? And the suggestion by James Nestor is it could be how we have learned to breathe in modern society. Hmm. So here's what you need to know. The big news is close your mouth. 
and breathe through your nose. So it's very important to breathe through your nose. And in fact, there are many ancient cultures, ancient India, the Native Americans here, uh, North America, Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Iranians, who basically have talked about breathing. Breathing through your nose is good. Breathing through your mouth is not good. And so one of the first things I would say is if you are suffering from anxieties or you're um, feeling kind of out of sorts or something like that, breathing and breathing deeply through your nose, exhaling through your nose may be the solution to regrounding yourself and to ultimately getting back to a healthy state. We've um, talked a lot about mindful things, mindful activities, mindful breathing is kind of what you're explaining here. Thinking about that breath in and out. That is very Zen of you. Well, it, it sounds very Zen, but I, I'm going to be clear on this. And certainly this man was on a, a Zen-like uh, quest, but this is more of a science book. And it's about why you want to breathe like this. Uh, and in fact, the last part of the book is some breathing exercises you do. So one of the things that you're thinking of is, ah, we need more oxygen. And he's going to argue is, no, you don't need more oxygen. You've got plenty of oxygen in your body. What you probably are missing is carbon dioxide. Hmm. And that just seems so counterintuitive. But the deal is, is how to breathe less and have this balance between the air and the carbon dioxide and what that may mean. And certainly it could have to do with aging, uh, could have to do with many of the um, chronic issues you're going through. Um, there is a North Carolina part of the story, Steve. Really? Ready for yes. Yeah. yeah. So there were um, people who were uh, suffering from emphysema who were really, really struggling Emphysema is, um, you know, smoking could be one of the causes of it, but any number of things could be could be part of this. And so they brought in a choir director to help with breathing techniques. And that was one of the, the you know, kind of, you know, light bulb moments. He was a choir director from North Carolina. But what he did was he spent time helping patients learn to breathe again. Because when you have emphysema, you're breathing short, breaths and you're trying to get more oxygen but the oxygen in your blood wasn't the issue it was balancing it out with the carbon dioxide and so he would help the people learn to rebreathe and then exhale and many of their lives you know they could have conversations again um, they could catch the breath again it wasn't as you know the as, as safer for everything but certainly it improved their quality of life. And he, those were many times singing techniques that he brought to choirs. One of the other things is many uh, religions have some kind of chant or something you must, you have to do, Ave Maria, any number of things. Many of those follow a breathing sequence hmm. that is natural. So these are from different cultures, different religions, but they all follow a very similar kind of breathing technique. And if we start going, you know, they don't discuss this in here, but thinking of uh, healing tones, any number of other things that are put into temples and ancient stuff, you could see that there's something that he's caught on to here. 
that is very, very interesting. And you can't help but read this and just start breathing through your nose. Mm -hmm. You can't help but breathe better. So it's a reminder of how to use your breath. And that may be something to consider is that if you have anxiety or allergies or any number of things that are part of your life that you would like to improve, the suggestion is if you breathe better, more thoughtfully, then you potentially could alter your your body in a positive way. And uh, yes, they use Navy SEAL stuff that they're looking there. They use yogi things that you're thinking of. Yes, it can go any number of ways um, throughout this book. But I think the research that he's talking about is something really we all could benefit from. And uh, even Dan Harris, Steve, even Dan Harris. Uh, absolutely. Dan Harris and his 10% happier concept does think about breathing, that mindfulness that is that one piece of this. But that's so interesting that it brings in the science of all of this stuff. Your human mind can do amazing things and your human mind can think through something as simple, as basic as breathing and make your life different. Well, and, and part of it, it's been ignored by the medical establishment in many ways, because it was typically thought, at least modern ways of thinking about it, as something that, you know, your organs and stuff like that, you can't really control. You know, they, they are what they are, right? What this is suggesting is that the mind, through breath, can alter it, and we certainly have some science to back this up. We're starting to create some data. Like I said, I think most of us could benefit by reading about this because we at least become aware of something you may not have been aware of. Mm -hmm. So uh, bravo on this. Good job. Uh, I do recommend this. James Nestor. And just remember, breathe through your nose. Breathe in through your nose. Breathe out through your nose. That's a great suggestion. Thank you for bringing us that book. That's Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, published in 2020 by James Nestor. Scroll with it. Brings to our scroll with it. There's plenty of things happening in the world. Let's talk about almost none of them. Let's start with a sad news first. Sad news at the top. Paul Rubens, the creator of the character Pee Wee Herman, passed away this week at age 70. I I have so much joy that comes from my memories of the absurd, childish character of Pee Wee Herman. Uh, Steve, when did you become aware of Pee Wee? I suppose Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the the movie, was my entrance into the character. I did not know about the stage work in the 80s. Yeah, I was first aware of it, of him, through the stage work. They put on HBO. It would play all the time. There we go. It's HBO. That's why I had no access to cable, so there were lots of things I did not know about. Yeah, in fact, we didn't have HBO either, but somehow um, we got to say we got to see it. Phil Hartman was in that um, show. He was yeah, Captain the, Carl, Steve. Yeah, the Groundlings, that group of people that learn to act together, Cassandra Peterson, Elvira, Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman, and Phil Hartman, along with John Paragon, 
who played Jambi the genie, those were a very close-knit troop in the Groundlings, and they were best friends. There's so many heartfelt expressions of, of love amongst that group of people. John Paragon, remember, when we read the Elvira biography, he's the one who designed the costume for Elvira. Pee Wee Herman right there in the middle of of that. Isn't that amazing? The connections that, that get made mm-hmm. and, and the the spark of like this is how we do a production. You know, Elvira and Pee Wee Herman certainly are caricature or yeah. characters yeah. that were created and we're aware of them. I, I wanted to mention a couple of things. Uh the HBO show was a children's show with adult themes in it it was a parody of a children's show correct and peewee's playhouse which was a saturday morning uh show was a children's show where they took red pills and blue pills didn't they steve i don't know about the red pills and blue pills but oh well well, Laura fishburne was in it steve and you never know what that really means there was was a lot of tongue-in-cheek comedy in that there was a lot of uh as a child, understanding there's something I don't understand about this comedy. So I also wanted to mention that the Alamo, uh, the representatives from the Alamo, wrote a touching uh, statement concerning Pee Wee Herman. Because if you watch Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Tim Burton film, mm-hmm. um, he went to the Alamo to get his bicycle, which uh, what he was told was in the basement of the Alamo. And Jan Hooks, who's no longer with us either, um, she had to inform Pee Wee at the end of the tour that there's no basement in the in the Alamo, but it has become a kind of a trope, a sort of a, a something to laugh about as you go on your tour, and you remember the Alamo. So yeah, there we go, the Alamo remembering Pee Wee. Remember the Pee Wee. The Alamo remembers the Pee Wee just as the Pee Wee remembers the Alamo. It's a very touching moment to hear all of the the joy that Paul Rubens brought to us. And 70 is very, very young. So this was cancer. He had kept it very private. Unfortunately, you know, cancer, um, you know, it just takes many of us way too early. So anyway, we're sad to hear about that. Steve, that's not the only uh, death we'll be honoring uh, this week. Cortana, the the disembodied voice of the Halo series, has been abandoned by Microsoft. Is that where it came from? Halo? Yes. Where, where Cortana came from? Yeah, the AI capabilities of that video game. The Microsoft bought that video game and made that into the AI for Windows and everything else. And now uh, a, a new shinier AI has been infused into Microsoft. Which, which is interesting. Why wouldn't they take chat GPT, which Microsoft has a, a, you know, their fingers all over, and just make that Cortana? The question of branding in 2023 is a great question. Why is Twitter no longer Twitter? Why is it X? Why do we rebrand things? Why don't we just change the engine? I, that's a great question I don't know the answer to. Interesting, interesting. But anyway, um, they're going to... Uh, retire it, you know, with, with some exceptions. If you have Windows and, or Edge, you'll have um, Cortana available, but it'll just be a little different. But Cortana was Alexa, um, Google, uh, Siri, was was Windows version of it. Certainly Windows 
it's interesting that so many people use Windows for their computer software, um, for their work software. It just never seemed to have have any legs. Yeah, I, I look forward to a future where I have an AI that really is functional, That is that is my personal assistant. That's what we've been working toward with all of this. ChatGPT right now is in the lead, but there's so many others that are going in that same direction. We'll see if we can get to uh, a couple of robot friends to watch movies with us. That's what That's really what I want. Steve, uh, let's mention the mission from God oh. from a group of people um, who are who sing. Steve, who sing, uh, yeah. who are going to be who, who who went through Joliet, but they will not be uh, celebrating this year in Joliet. Yeah, this is sad news for me. As, as sad as the death of Pee Wee Herman is, the Blues Brothers Con 2023 has been postponed due to the actor strike. We've been talking about the actor strike for a few months now, talking about what we can do, what we should do in order to honor that union and those members. Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi have decided that they cannot be a part of Blues Brothers Con 2023 because of the actor strike in South solidarity so the whole event has been canceled unfortunately i am very frustrated by this yeah um it, it is uh sad that it's not going to take place certainly it was a very joyous situation last year mm-hmm. and we look forward to it coming back uh, when it comes back the frustrating part for me is is the focus on blues music. This is a blues music convention that just happens to be related to struck work, Blues Brothers from 1980. It's frustrating to me that these men decided that they cannot support this because of the strike. I, I honor the strike. I absolutely understand the strike, but this is one of those frustrating pieces. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think we can. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on threads and the site formerly known as Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hessenflow. Dudes. See you in the future. Cowabunga, man. Let's go have some pizza. With marshmallows and jelly. I did get a, a mutant pizza at the Alamo Draft House. That, that is what I chose off of their menu. Oh.